Hey everyone. I don't normally do my sermons like this, so it's likely this is going to be a train wreck. So long before I wrote, about two years ago when I started writing the book, um, my plan was not to write a long book, and it wasn't to write it about what it's on um, at all, and it was supposed to be really short, Um, but other than that, it's exactly what we intended. we're, I was I was planning on writing like a like a seventy page little volume um, to go with Blueprint, this book we did before that was like a devotional, and the idea was to just talk about like if you have a, a good ministry model, like you're doing what Jesus said to do, essentially. Why is it that like some churches flourish in that and others don't if they're worshiping and following the same Jesus, right? <clears throat> and part of it was um, based on. Uh, this, uh, this thing I heard Tim Keller say a while back He's a pastor in New York City Who's had a lot of influence in evangelical churches In the last 15 years And he said something like this This isn't the exact quote This is the best I could reconstruct it He said, leaders in the church Have all kinds of visions But they don't have the horses To actually get those visions accomplished They can blow the trumpet of vision But they don't have the horses to carry out the charge So like, obviously that's a That's a cavalry metaphor, right? I think I can blow this Oh, there's a sleeping baby. Oh, sorry, I can't. Um, so the, the cavalry metaphor is that there, there, it, it, before about eight, well, before the Second World War, um, the, one of the most terrifying parts of any military group was the cavalry because they were basically like the modern air force. They were the fastest thing. You couldn't really keep track of them. And they were here, and then they'd be five miles over there. And it could, they, they were the most likely to, to do something you couldn't plan on if you were fighting against them, and they would just come out of nowhere. And so what everybody dreaded was a trumpet blast from a direction you, they were not expecting it. Right? And so the, the cavalry thing would go this way. They would blow this trumpet, and then the cavalry would charge, and they would just do terrible warlike things. And what Keller's saying is he's saying, you know, for the last— well, I don't know what he would say. This is what I would say. So for the, the last 40 years or so in the American church, there's been a very strong emphasis on vision. Right? Like, you need, you need to have a vision. Your church needs to have a vision. You need to have a vision. And then, like, for people, there's all the self-help vision stuff. Like, you need to have a vision for your life. What's your vision for your life? And so we just call it dreams, usually with kids, you know, but it's the same thing. What's your vision for your life? What do you think? Blah, 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 right? And it's, it's true that vision is important because you do need a trumpet blast that leads the charge of your life. Like, it, it, it is important for motivation, right? Because if you don't have something in the midst of your imagination— that is good in the future that you could see for yourself, for your church, for, I mean, for anything that you're a part of, for your country, for your world, it's very demotivating, right? Now, you don't want something that's too—one of, of the problems with people's dreams sometimes is that they're too specific, right? You can't have a vision of your future wife because your wife is going to be a specific person, right? So, like, you're actually hurting yourself if you get too specific. You want to have a vision, but that vision needs to be a little blurry because you don't know who it is, right? With your job, like, I'm going to be this when I grow up. Well, you don't have as much control over all that as you might think you do. And so you need to have— you need to have something in your imagination, but it needs to keep from being hardened into a dream because imaginations are inspiring, but they're still flexible, And that's what humans need to be. We need to be very flexible because the world is a very chaotic place, right? And the waves are going to push us, and we're going to go in one direction, but we're going to go in that direction like this, right? And yet we need something that drives us forward, right? We need a vision, right? But what Keller is basically saying, 
I think, is something that I, that I said in the book this way, right? I've become more and more convinced over the course of 20 years of ministry that the typical church's problem isn't really a lack of vision. I believe it's a lack of character and conviction. If we want to live redemptive stories rather than just dream redemptive dreams, we need a renewal in character and conviction. What I mean by that is this. If you are talking about your own life, or you're talking about the church, or you're talking about any larger thing, vision is actually not the most likely thing to not be there. Human beings are dreaming creatures, right? Like, you hardly have to tell them to come up with ideas, and thoughts, and hopes, and dreams. Like, people, people generate these things. Now, sometimes they're really narrowed. If somebody has a really narrowed childhood experience, and they've been abused, like, like, it's hard to come up with a good dream, right? When you've been kind of narrowed down. But, but even people who have, have lived in terrible situations, they dream about something. Our hearts create dreams. The issue is, if you're dreaming about anything really worthwhile, right? Something that is bigger than you at all, you can't know if you're going to accomplish it or not. Or you should—you'll ha- have some intense doubt as to whether or not it's possible. I mean, think about this. Why do you think one of the most fundamental things in Christian faith is, well, faith? Why do you think the fulcrum of salvation and damnation and growth and deterioration and all of the fulcrums of this way or that way in life, Christian faith says, comes, ultimately comes down to repentance and faith— the ability to acknowledge when you've gone wrong and to acknowledge what's good and true and right and the willingness to turn around and to go in that direction and to believe, right? It's because human beings are the kind of creatures— see, we're not, we're not propositions. We're not, we're not math equations. We're creatures that are always becoming something. Even if you think you're already something, you're still sliding around. We're, we're just not hardened, and so there's something out there in our imagination that we know we should be. And for some of us, that's very ordered by Jesus, so we, we've grown in the mind of Christ. For others of us, it comes out for different reasons. But because we're the kind of creature that can or cannot become those things, and because the world is a terrifying place, and it is, doubt is always at our elbow. Human beings are the kind of creature— that if they give themselves to any real imagination about a better future, especially one that is bigger than us, bigger than you, it is not by any means certain that you'll reach it. And that means doubt will always be at your elbow. And so what do you do, right? And you see, there's two possibilities. One is you believe in your dream. You believe in your dream, right? And the other is, you believe the fight is worthwhile even if you lose. It doesn't matter. It's just worthwhile. It's the right direction. You can fight your whole life. You never really make what you want. It's fine. Because fighting and losing is better than winning at anything else. Right? You see, if your dream is, is significant, like it's a serious thing, you can't know if, if you're going to do it. You, you'll never—you can be like, you know, people were like, oh, I accomplished thing. I never doubted it. <laughs> All right, well, that either means you're lying, you don't know yourself, or you're dumb. Because you should have doubted it. Maybe you just didn't even look around to see the crevasses on both sides of you, and you just thought you were on a nice little road. Maybe you, like, blocked it out somehow. But the fact is, is that it was by no means certain at any point. And if doubt wasn't at your elbow— 
It should have been. Because what human beings are called to live with is not obliviousness. We're called to live with courage. That's why the Bible is so serious about having a ministry of what? Just put the Greek preposition in front of it. Encouragement. Why is the Bible so big on encouragement? We make it into this swarmy, like, like, huggy, like, frilly pillow thing, like, encouragement. I'm going to do a little encouragement. I'm going to encourage you. That's not what the word means. The word means to stuff courage into a place of fear. I mean, you're terrified. You don't know if it's going to work out. You just don't know if you can do it. You don't know if your family can ever be what you hope it's going to be. You don't know if you can ever not be insecure around other people. You don't know if you can ever really obey Jesus in this thing. You don't just, you're terrified. You're this big bag of fear, and and Jesus is going to use somebody to come along and just get a big pile of it, courage, and just stuff it in there and be like, hang in there, right? That's what encouragement means. The Bible is full of encouragement because we're terrified creatures. And because we, we want to believe in our little dreams, but we know that our dreams are not certain. And so you can't just believe in your dream. You've got to believe that the fight, the action, the pursuit is worth it whether it happens or not. And the only way that can happen is if you're a person of very strong character and a conviction that doing this is worth it. Right? I have a vision. Like, I'm a pastor, right? I have a vision for what I hope this church could become if I, if I led it well. And if we all were horses together, you know? I have a vision. <clears throat> um, my vision for my first seven years here is not like what it's been. It's been different. It's been really good. It's been better at some moments and worse at others. But I, but I couldn't picture any of your faces before I came here. I couldn't know what would happen. I didn't know when the good times were going to be, when the bad times were going to be. I didn't know what the trials were going to be. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. My trials have been very different than I thought they were going to be as a senior pastor. I didn't know any of that stuff. And I didn't know if things were going to get better or worse. I don't know if they're going to get better or worse next year. I have no idea. I have a vision of where I'd like to go so I can set a course. But the only thing I get from my vision is a little bit of encouragement and a compass setting, and that's it. Everything else has to come from what God is doing inside me in conviction and courage and character. Does that make sense? So that no matter what happens, I'll have the courage to proceed. I won't give up. I won't encourage you to give up. One of the difficulties that we run into as a church together, especially in America at this time, is that we find that what Jesus has actually called us to be as a church together extraordinarily difficult. In fact, it feels completely impossible. Because the things that Jesus has actually told us to be together as a church is he's called us to do, essentially, you can narrow it down to maybe three things. One, to make disciples of all nations. To go out into a world in which people don't know and follow Jesus and aren't his disciples and have not been taught to obey everything he's commanded and to do that. To help people become disciples. Two, to take care of his sheep, right? John 20. Peter's in charge of things at the time and Jesus says, hey, do you love me? Yes, okay. Well, then take care of my sheep, right? And that's for the whole church that Peter was then the head of. I don't have time to argue why. And then third, real godliness and holiness. Like, honest to God, we're different. We actually, somebody looks at us 
and they don't know what Jesus looked like when he was here, but they think he would act and feel and respond and react like us. Okay? The alternative to that is neglect. Right? You can neglect a church. You can just not go. You can not be part of it. You can go to a church but not contribute in any meaningful way. Just be neglectful. But you can also just build something that's other than what Jesus told us to build. Right? And in, in, in America, that has tended to be in, in larger churches. Right? And, and so we can all feel like we can look at bigger churches and we can imitate them. And then if our church has like you know, good stuff happening, which generally means not those three things, but something else, um, we can feel validated. Because we all want to feel validated. We all want to feel like we're on the right track, we're doing the right thing, we're all approved of, right? And we, and we don't really believe we're approved of in Christ, not as deeply as we should. And so we want to believe that God will approve of us because we're a good Christian in our little life and that we, and we're part of a good church, right? And the fact that our budgets are up or we have a nice building or that whatever has no relationship, <laughs> no relationship to whether or not we're doing what we're supposed to be doing as a church. Now, we could be doing what we're supposed to be doing as a church and have a building and have staff and have a budget. That's all possible, I think. I think it's inherently corrupting, but I think it's possible. And or we could not. But what generally happens is pastors are human beings, so they desperately want to be successes. And people want to believe that they're part of something that matters, that's significant, that's the right church, that's the proper whatever. You know, like, that's the, I go to that thing and it matters, right? And so what happens is, instead of churches actually leading people to Jesus, people reorganize, right, into places because they're they're going somewhere, right? And so the pastor can feel like he's a success, and the people can feel like there's someplace that's good. And really, we're not—we're not maybe imitating Jesus in what he told us to do. We might just be validating ourselves in an extraordinarily multi-million dollar expensive way. And one of the things—probably the biggest thing that keeps me up—well, actually, nothing keeps me up, but I, I have narcolepsy. But one of the things—one of the things that bothers me— is every year when we do the budget, I look at the number and I say, if I don't think about anything else but like, we spent this much money on ourselves or we spent this much money like doing church, what, did, what happened? And I look at that number and I go, what happened? That bothers me. It just bothers me because I'm like, is that really, are we supposed to be doing this? Or are we just doing this because we've been doing this for 56 years? And you see, I don't think we're one or the other. I don't think that we're like just validating ourselves. A high point. And I don't think that we're focused entirely, everything that we do, focused entirely on growing in godliness, taking care of his sheep, and making disciples. I don't think that either. You know, we're somewhere in the middle. And the issue is not how to self-evaluate ourselves, because the point is not our self-evaluation. We are redeemed in Jesus, and everything that we do, if it was meant to redeem us, would be worthless. The question is, what are we going to do right now? What are we going to do tomorrow? Who are we going to be together over the next five, ten years? What, what are we just going to do? Because we're already, hopefully, if we believe in Jesus, we're justified by faith. The question is, are we here? Are we going to do what we're supposed to do? And are we going to look at other people who have gone before us and find inspiration from them 
without respecting their level of worldly success? Or are we going to look at other people who are validated by others, seek to imitate them, and then try to find our validation in what we do or don't do? Does that make sense? And one of the recent ways you can know if you're looking for inspiration rather than validation is, do you, are you inspired by people that weren't popular or successful or, like, did something immensely great? Right? I mean, do you, do you, do you like people who are something? But, but do you also like people who, like, I mean, do you like missionary stories? And do you like stories of people who, like, served the poor and did it beautifully and nobody knows their name, but, like, your uncle knew them and, like, told a story about them? Like, do you love all of the stories of people who were horses? Real horses. There's, um, for a Christian— if Jesus tells us to do something, he says, this is what you're doing, those three things, and we're not doing that, to whatever extent we're not doing it, that's kind of the definition of worldliness, right? We can talk about worldliness in our own lives as we have for the last 10 weeks, but you see, what worldliness ends up looking like is there's one thing that God calls us to do, and it's going to be pretty impossible, because he always calls us to do something that he's going to be involved in. And if he calls us to do something he's going to be involved in, and we don't believe he's actually going to involve himself, it's impossible, right? So he calls us to something that, based on the weakness of our faith, seems impossible. And then there's some other thing that we think that we can work. Like, if I don't do this, I could do this. It's something else. Have a nice life, buy a relatively new boat— get the moonroof in the new minivan, have a nice marriage, have three nice children, or none, or watch a lot of TV. I, I don't know. I don't know what your idea, you know, of good life, the good life is. But there's this other thing, right? Without this. And that's kind of the definition of worldliness. And the reason why that's important is because if you're a Christian and you profess belief in the God of all glory— who does the work of all redemption through the one who is the Christ to draw us into this vision of what he has for us, and you do something else. There's only two possible things that are happening there. One is you don't believe at all, okay? And that's possible. But there is another option. That's not the only possibility. The other possibility is you're just afraid. You just—you don't believe that that thing that God is really asking us to do to be together— is possible. You just don't think it's possible. And you're terrified to try and fight as hard as you can for that thing and for it to end up being nothing. And in light of that, something else. And I want you to understand how God relates to that because oftentimes we think that God is obligated to re relate to that in a way that we feel is culturally appropriate for us. And he isn't. Now he can do it if he wants to but he's not obligated to do so. And the Bible seems to teach over and over again that he doesn't, okay? Let me, ex let me explain what I mean by this. And I can't read the whole book for you of Haggai because it took too long last service. But on page 1441 in your Bibles is the book of Haggai. It's only three pages. There are, there's three main oracles or prophecies to the whole of the people of Israel. 
the first, so basically these people came back from Babylon, so they were in captivity for 70 years. They made lives for themselves, and God set them free to come back and rebuild Jerusalem so they could be the people of God together again, right? And so the, so the people who came back were serious business people. They traveled 700 miles so they could be poorer, okay? That's what these people did, because they believed in something. They believed in their heritage. They believed in God's promises. They believed that they were the people of God. They believed that they needed to do it. So they did it. So they come, they come back 700 miles, and they start building it. And here's what it turns out. They find the thing that God called them to do to be very difficult. And I don't, I don't know why we're like this. That like we, we come to God and we see what we're meant to be in Him and we move in that direction and we find it to be difficult. And that really throws us. And then doubt is right at our elbow to say, this can't be done. And then worldliness is right there to say, let's just do this instead. It'll be fine. And it'll be better than just pouring everything into failing, right? And so we just do. And so these people that were pretty godly folks, when Haggai finally comes to them, they're, like, they've, they, they, they're not building the temple. And they're, they're like, they're putting panels on their houses so their houses look a little nicer, right? And so Haggai's first message is, listen, guys, the reason you're starving and the reason you're cold and the reason why your life isn't going well, God says, this is because I blew all of it away. He's like, he's like I, everything that you did, I have intentionally frustrated. And I want you to understand that because we, we think when somebody needs to be motivated back onto the right path, what we tend to do is say, oh, sweetie, you can do better. Can't we, let's just, can't we like, we think that positively relating to somebody is what they need. But the problem is, is that when human beings act foolishly, right? They're not, by definition, not acting wisely. If you read through the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs says this, if somebody is wise, you just tell them the truth and they'll love you for it, right? That's it. If that's their disposition, if they're, they just want to hear the truth, and you tell them the truth, they'll be like, thank you so much, and they'll just do it, right? And then there's the foolish person. And nowhere does it say, be nice to the foolish person. Everywhere it says, you get like a big stick, like a two-by-four, and you find like the part of their head, and you just, you hit, like you, I mean, that's where the verse, the rod is for the back of the fool, right? Why, why whip, why would the Bible be like, sometimes you gotta whip people? Like, why would it say that? And it, it says that because foolishness only responds to pain. There's, there's a, it's fundamental to human psychology, right? It's, it's fundamental to who we are as people. When we decide to be hard-headed, when we decide to act foolishly, when we decide not to do what we know is right, telling people what's right doesn't help. It doesn't change their mind. It doesn't move them in a new direction. What they need is pain. Now, that doesn't mean we're supposed to hit them, right? But, but God, that's what God usually does, right? He basically says, listen— I wiped out your bank account for a reason. That's what he basically says to the people I got. I destroyed all your crops. I made sure no matter how hard you worked, you could never get ahead. And I did it on purpose to save you. Right? And then it says, the people, the leaders and the people said, oh, and they got their behinds to work. And God said nothing nice to them. He said, go up to the mountains, and you get wood, and you get stones, and you start building the temple so that I can be happy about it, and so I can be honored. 
right? And you're like, well, listen, 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 right? But God is supposed to be pleased, and he's supposed to be honored, and that's why we exist, right? And so then they start doing the work, and they do it for a month, right? Not a word from God at all. Just, hey, get to work, right? And then after a month of that, God gives Haggai another message, and he says, listen, it's been 70 years since they destroyed the first temple, and some of you are older than 75 or so, and you remember the last temple. You look at that temple, and you tell me if it, if it looks like—it doesn't look like just nothing to you, right? Which is not a nice way to start an oracle, right? Doesn't your life seem like nothing? Everything you've worked for. It's just a pile of garbage, right? And it's very easy to feel like that, right? In comparison to what you thought your life was going to be, what you expected your experience at church to be after you came to Jesus— or you might think that like, yeah, I'm part of the church now, but the church is in decline, and the West is getting more secular, and it just doesn't look good, and maybe Christianity's, uh, and, right? And there was another time earlier in American history where like people were more godly, and maybe we were a Christian country, right? Like, which is mostly just false, right? I mean, th there's as many people going to church today as in the time of the Puritans. I don't know if you know that. Church attendance in America has never been particularly high. There was a time where lots of people were culturally Christian, but they weren't Christians. That's why the First Great Awakening was so successful. There were virtually no Christians left. And then people came to Jesus in the thousands. But more than that, we have to recognize that sometimes you've got to look at what you think you're doing and how you're going after your dream and realize that it's not turning out the way you wanted, and that even if you're as successful as you could hope, it's still going to be terrible. But that's basically what God is saying. They've started, they've laid the foundation. They've started to build the temple. So they've already determined how big it's going to be and basically what it's going to be made out of, right? They already know that. And then God comes up. He says, so, this temple. I mean, those of you who are over 70 or 75 or so, you guys saw the last one. Is this going to be? How's this one going to compare? Doesn't it seem like nothing? And they're like, yeah. Because Solomon's temple was amazing. Right? And then he says, listen. He says, listen to me. You be strong. He says, be strong, Zerubbabel, who is the king. Be strong, Joshua, who is the pastor. Be strong, all you people, and do the work. Because I'm with you. See, the funny thing about the promises is that he doesn't say, you know, you think it's going to be nothing, but it's going to be greater than Solomon's temple. That's not really what he says. He says, so it looks like it's going to be really crappy. And it is. It's going to be. Right? But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just build it. Just do—listen. She was saying, he's saying, I know you have this dream, and I know it seems impossible, and you may never even see it. The question is, are, do you believe it's right? Are you willing, out of conviction and character, to do the work, no matter what happens? If you know it's the right thing, and I'm with you. What kind of people are you? Are you the kind of people? Because listen, if you'll work, I'll be with you. Right? And then he says, in a little while, I'm going to do amazing things, and I'm going to bring in the desire of all nations, and the glory of this temple will be more than the former one. Not the size, not the status, not the gold, but its glory, its significance in the plan of God. But that was going to happen like 400 years later. Like, these people were not going to see that. Right? The question is, did they believe in it? Do they believe that God would bring about his own glory through them just being a horse? Right? And then in the last 
oracle, he says, hey, if you, Haggai says, hey, if you um, have, if, you in, in, if you're in the temple and you consecrate like bread or meat or something, and then you, you carry it out of the temple and it bumps into something that isn't sacred or clean, ceremonially clean, does the thing that's ceremonially unclean become clean because it bumps into the sacred thing, or is it the other way around, right? And the priests go, well, it's the other way around. Like the sacred stuff, touching on sacred stuff gets defiled. He's like, right, right. Stuff doesn't get on track accidentally. The natural way life goes is it gets more chaotic, more disorganized, it falls apart more, corruption seeps into places. That's what happens. Like, just, just look at your kitchen. Just watch what happens in your kitchen, okay? What happens is constant and increasing disorder until somebody intentionally comes in and does a ritual, right? Just puts every, cleans, just puts a bunch of work into it, and then it's clean again. Like, my kids still think, I think, that it's like, like, the Lord does it, you know? And that's not really true, because we make one of them do it mostly now, but but it's really easy to show up and just be like, oh, this will just—my life will just go fine. No, it, it won't. No. If you want to be on the track of character conviction, if you want to do the thing you're really there to, and you don't want to fall into worldliness, like, you got to realize, like, there's—it takes focused intention all the time. Like, you got to realize that, like, things get sacred because you make them sacred. Like, you do the ritual of making them sacred. It—none of that happens on its own. Not a bit of it. And so it's only if you stay focused on the thing you're doing. And then, you know what it says, interestingly? He says, you do that, and then from this day forward, I will bless you. Right? Which is very similar to when Jesus says, in Matthew 6, he says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, the, the purpose of the concept of blessing is not that Jesus, pe- people who follow Jesus think they're just going to get rich or something. That, like, if they follow Jesus, he's going to make everything in their life good. That's not the idea of blessing. The idea of blessing is this. That you receive things you don't pay much attention to because you have paid attention to the things that are infinitely more important. That's how the idea of blessing works. You do the right thing for the right reason. And by doing that, you can't control what happens in these other things you need because you can't manage them in a worldly way the way you want to in a morally open kind of way because you're, you're doing the right thing for the right reason. So you, you really can't control everything that's going to happen at work or everything that happens in your marriage or everything that happens in your relationships. or any, You can't because you're controlled by your one master and you're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness. So you can't, right? And so what you have to do is you have to trust that in some way you can't completely understand, either because of how what you do ends up working out, or because of the activity of God, or because of both, or some mixture of things you can't perceive, that those things happen while you're focused on these things. Build the temple, and I will make the wheat grow. Follow Jesus— And he will give you the things that you need, and you don't have to spend your time worrying about those things. Focus your attention on him, and let Jesus worry about those things. Right? And so you can go through all kinds of places in the Bible, and you'll find these three things over and over again. First pain, then after a response of repentance and faith, then encouragement, and then coaching of how to stay focused on how we proceed. And so what I think the fear is, is similar to the ones that caused the people in Haggai's day to build their panel houses. I believe that we as a church, and I'm, listen, I'm preaching you, this is my sermon, okay, for me, okay? 
I believe that our fear is, is that there really isn't a harvest. Which is ironic because Jesus explicitly said that he was here for a harvest. But I think that when we look at, look, okay, so look for a second at how many people in your life around you have come to Jesus. Just think, just think about that for a second. How many people in your life around you have come to Jesus? Think about how much qualitatively you've come to Jesus. How like Jesus are you? Encouraged by that thought or dis- discouraged by that thought, right? And how encouraged are you by how people, when they do say they want to believe in Jesus and follow him, how well they stay? Right? And let me ask you this. Does it seem to you like nothing? When you think those three thoughts How many people have come to Jesus around you How deeply you have come to Jesus Really And how well people stay When they say they want to come to Jesus Doesn't it seem to you like nothing Because it feels that way to me a lot And It makes me want to Build a paneled boat for fishing Because when doubt is right here, interrupting my conviction, it takes one second to get a vision for what I would do in a worldly way. One second. Right? And yet, if if we're willing to listen to Jesus, Jesus anticipated this fear. He knew it would be universal for all of us. And he said that we were wrong. He said, he basically said, listen, if you're a human being and you come to me and you know what I'm doing, which is taking in a harvest of all people in all the world, not just for them to be saved, but for them to come to be people of my kingdom and my righteousness, he's like, you're gonna, you're gonna think there's no harvest and you're wrong about that. And he like explicitly comes after us about it. And listen, I I realize, listen, I realize that for a lot of Christians— Seeking to help other people become disciples and really being changed from the inside out are two of the most humiliating things in your life. Okay? Like, I get that. I get there's all kinds of hang-ups and personality and character stuff in you that's been there for way longer than you thought. Stuff that, there's stuff that, like, you even call an addiction, though clinically nobody would ever call it an addiction because you're just so weak, you just can't stop doing it. You know? And, like, I, like, I get it. Like, I have experienced with all that stuff. Every week, every week I have some experience and I'm like, why did I spend my time doing that? Why did I just say that? Why did I just not, why did I just not say that? I could probably give you five examples off the top of my head from just this week. Right? I, it's, and then leading other people to Jesus, just thinking about that's a little humiliating, right? But not for a real reason, it's, it's for a false reason. Like, the one who testified for me before the throne of my own judgment is the only one I should care to testify about. Right? I, I, I can think that thought. It's very hard to feel that feeling. And so when, I, when Jesus says, you're wrong, Nick, I, I feel threatened personally. I don't feel happy. Right? Like whenever you have a pessimistic thought, like when you don't think something is true, but you wish it was true, right? You should be really happy. You'd want to be happy when somebody's like, no, it's actually false. Like if you're like, listen— Nothing ever gets better with poverty. It's just, it is what it is. People are like that because they're like that. And somebody goes, no, no, there's like legit. There's like a way to help people in poverty that like actually works, right? Like you should want to be like, okay, I'm, I'm skeptical, 
but I'm really interested, right? And see, that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, listen, I know you don't believe that this is a time of harvest. I know you don't believe that. I, I know you don't believe that. You're a human being. It's universal. And I know that you don't think the power of the Spirit is present to change you. I know you don't, I know you don't think that. And I know that you think even if somebody were to come to Jesus, that Satan would seal him right back and the world would seal him right back. And what's the point? Okay? Like, I get it. Right? But the problem is actually not those three things aren't true. The problem is, is that those three things are impossible to us. We think they're impossible. And so we give up like that. We give up so fast. And we just, whoosh, we're right here. There's the vision that God gives us. Doubt is here, worldliness is there, and we are here so fast. And then we go, why isn't this working? Why am I not becoming godly? Like, we're in the temple of mammon wondering why, but it just happens so fast. But Jesus said, listen, here's what you need to know. And this is clearly a saying of Jesus because he repeats it a number of times. There's this time where he's going into Jerusalem, right? And he sees the crowds just of the city of Jerusalem. And it says, he saw the crowds— He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, he said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And so it's interesting because this is a very—I mean, Jesus said that this was a profoundly sinful generation. Like, if you're like, yeah, Nick, but they were religious and stuff, and like, there was going to be a harvest among them. Look, there was nothing optimistic about that generation. But Jesus looked at them, and he didn't say, oh, wicked, wicked generation. Though he totally could have said that, and he said that in other places. But here's the thing about sin that is to our advantage. Sin will beat you to death every time. It'll beat your heart to death. It'll beat your life to death. It'll beat you to death every time. All the way to death. It's just, it'll it'll destroy you, right? And here's the thing. People who are harassed and helpless sometimes are ready to get out. And so, so Jesus can look at a generation that's really hardened and really sinful and doesn't want to listen to him, and he can look at them and he can have compassion on them and say, look at them. Do you see how harassed they are? Do you see how helpless they are? You see, their own rebellion, their own foolishness has so beaten them up, has so harassed them, has so torn them apart that that there's a harvest among them. If you would go and offer to them a salvation, a leadership, a truth, if you'd offer the compassion of the gospel, many of them would leave behind that confusion, and they would leave behind being harassed and feeling totally unable to become the kind of people they want to be. They would leave that behind if you would invite them, even, even though they're a wicked generation. Right? And In Luke's gospel, he says something very similar, which should lead us to believe that this is a saying of Jesus that he repeated constantly, right? It says, and after that, the Lord appointed 72 people, others, 72 others, and he sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do you see that last line? You see the logic there? 
Where it's not about getting what you're hoping for. It's about whether or not you're willing to do it even if you completely fail, right? Like, what hope does a lamb have going out among wolves? Right? Think about this. I mean, just picture it in your head. Like a pasture with wolves running everywhere. And there's a little lamb, and he's like, okay, buddy, time to go out there. Right? And the lamb's like, "Uh, I'm sorry? Right? He's like, go out there and talk to the wolves. They're, they're, they're probably—just talk to them. Like, it just—it's crazy. I mean, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's, I mean, it, that's worse than a camel going through the eye of a needle. You're like, camel through the eye of a needle? That sounds very difficult. That's crazier! Right? Because, listen, it is, it's not about whether you win or lose. It has nothing to do with whether anybody ever comes to Jesus. None of that matters. All that matters is, listen— if you looked out there, you see nothing but wolves. Okay, fine. You can. If that's what you see, that's what you see. But you're going out there. And the reason is that the harvest is plentiful. You see, what you and I believe, really, what we really believe is this, is that Jesus is sending us out into a cornfield that's already been combined. And we're like deer in the fall during hunting season, like ducking bullets while we're sniffing our way through stuff that's been gone over three times to find a little kernel of of corn or a little broken off cob so that we can find a little something. And what Jesus is saying is, no, it's more like this enormous vineyard that has this enormous crop and the grapes are just rotting on the vines because no one will pick them. And now you might say, Nick, that's not what I experienced. Okay, well listen, we're worldly. <laughs> we're, just look at us. We're never going to get a harvest if we're just like everybody We can't worship in the temple of mammon and think that the beauty of the adornment of the gospel is going to flow out from us and tons of people are going to come to Jesus. It's never going to happen. But if, but if we, out of courage and conviction, because of the, the virtuous character Christ has built in us, we'll, we'll really go after him. We'll leave the panel of houses and we'll build the thing that looks like nothing in our eyes. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. And the thing that is required is not more grapes, it's more harvesters. But listen, harvesting is blue-collar work, man. I mean, we'd all love to be in the tower of the vineyard and blow the trumpet and have all the workers go do it. That's not how it works. You gotta go out in the field, in the sun, and you gotta cut it off the vine and get stung by the bees that are, like, eating the ones that have already fallen. And it's just— It's day-in, day-out ordinary stuff. And John, he says this. He's like, you guys, you guys have this saying. Four more months until the harvest. Now think about that. I mean, you, you may have read that passage a bunch of times and just read over that verse, right? Oh, Jesus talked about some saying. What does that matter? Think about the saying. If it's four more months until the harvest, it's not time to harvest. You don't have to do anything. All you gotta do is wait around. Oh, the wheat's not ready yet. It's fine. Right? And that's what we think. We think the people in our lives and the people around us and the people we haven't met yet and the people at work and all these people, all these people, this just, this just isn't the right time. They're not ready. This isn't, he's like, that's a, Jesus is like, that's a stupid saying. Right? His response to that is, you guys say four more months until the harvest. Open your eyes. Like he says, thinking that is like this. You're standing at the edge of a field of wheat, right? Wheat, wheat, 
really dramatically changes color when it's time to be harvested. It's green, and then it turns gold, okay? Or white, right? It turns like a golden white, right? And he's saying, it's like standing at the edge of a field that is golden white as far as the eye can see. And you go, well, looks like it's just four more months till the harvest. He's like, open your eyes! You guys, open your eyes! You see, you look out, and you see yourself is harassed and helpless. You see people who are harassed and helpless, and you're like, I'm wicked, and they're wicked, or this doesn't work, or Jesus couldn't be real, and why doesn't this? And he's like, it's all backwards. Worldliness is confusing us. We're sent out to do something that requires the potency of godliness, and we wonder why it doesn't work when we wallow in worldliness. Of course it doesn't work. We think people won't accept Jesus, but they won't accept Jesus when we don't accept Jesus. We think that we can't change, or, or, or we, we can't really grow in any kind of meaningful godliness without becoming self-righteous and self-contradictory. He's like, if you think that, that's what's going to happen. Because growing in grace requires faith. And you can't let doubt come to your elbow and just be like, well, I guess I'll do faith and this, because you can't have two masters. Because if you do, you'll hate one and you'll love the other. And if you have two, you'll love the one that pays off the quickest, which is always mammon. And all your prophecies will come true because you'll make them come true. But he said, there's another saying. There's another saying that in the end, the one who sows or plants and the one who reaps or harvests rejoice together because it, because you may not, you may not see what you, what happens. You may not see them come to Jesus. You might not see the transformation. You may not see the church grow to a place where it is marked at every moment by taking care of his sheep and letting people become disciples and drawing them in and growing in godliness. You may not see that, but the one who sows gets to rejoice with the one who reaps. The ones in Haggai's day who build something that looks like nothing are one with those in Jesus' day when the desire of all nations came in and when God filled that temple with glory. Apostle Paul said, there's one who plants, another waters, and both of them rejoice together, and it is God who makes it grow. What matters is not whether we ever do anything that isn't nothing in our eyes. None of that matters. We're not trumpets at the end, in the end of the day. We're all horses. We're all horses. We're all deciding whether or not, in day in and day out, in the most ordinary possible way, whether we will give ourselves to the thing that we think is impossible. Will we risk everything we could manage for ourselves that isn't in line with what Jesus has called us to be? Will we trust him? Will we believe? Will we reject the doubt that will draw us in a moment to worldliness? And will we believe that it is worth everything to cast off what entangles us and to run after Jesus, to take hold of that for which he took hold of us, to believe that he'll carry to completion the thing he started, to know that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in us both to will and to act according to his good purpose, that we actually believe that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and that God really does create new life and change those new lives he's made. And so as we baptize some people in the next few minutes, I want you to think about that. I want you to turn to believe it. I want you to consider what it would look like to 
to not just finish the series on worldliness and then just go back to it, but with vigilance and ferocity to really seek over the next decade, every day and every week together, what it would look like to be a people who help people become new disciples, who take care of Christ's sheep, and probably more of the poor to boot, and who really grow in godliness and holiness in Christ. Let's pray. Father, will you please help us to be a people who love you with our whole hearts, who seek your kingdom and righteousness first, who don't have two masters, who are not unproductive in the faith, and help us to be people who strive graciously and fail constantly in the right direction towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.